Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Our text today is Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at three churches today. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. In just a moment, I'm going to read the text of these three churches, but first I want to set the stage. Jesus has just revealed himself to the Apostle John, and he has done so not in a way that John has seen before. Perhaps he caught a glimpse of this on the Mount of Transfiguration, But here he has in full detail a glimpse of the glorified Son of God. He describes him as um, someone like a son of man amongst seven golden lampstands, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I read that vision to you again because you're going to notice as we go through these seven letters to the seven churches over the next couple of weeks... Jesus will reference this vision. He will reference again what he looks like. And as he highlights certain aspects of his appearance, we learn more and more about who Jesus is in relationship with his church. Often we think of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have one, praise God, because of what Christ has done for us. I don't think we as often think of our church's relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus does not just have a relationship with you individually or with the global church throughout time and around the world, but he also has a relationship with individual churches. We know this because these seven churches represent the whole but exist individually. When we talk about the whole global church, we don't lose sight of local churches, and that Jesus has a relationship with local churches. So Jesus has a relationship with you, and he has a relationship with the church as a whole, and he has a relationship with Goodwill Church Beacon. And what we want to do as we read through these letters and as we study them together is ask the question, how do we apply either the the challenge and conviction of the letter or the comfort of the letter to our situation? So we're thinking together as a church today. Yes, there's individual application, I'm sure. The Holy Spirit will be at work in your hearts and in your souls, bringing the truth of Scripture to bear in your everyday lives. But he also speaks to us as a church gathered together, Goodwill Church Beacon. We want to hear what he has to say to us through these three churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. So let's turn to the text today. I'm going to read through it, and I want you to just hear it read over you. And then when I preach the, the sermon, um, you'll also hear, you see the text on the screen behind me. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Excuse me. That? Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us together as a local church to hear what you say to us through these three letters. We thank you for the vision of Christ that you have given us, and we pray that you would help us to receive these admonitions and encouragements. Convict us and comfort us, we pray. Lord, give us ears that are able to hear, and hearts that not only receive the message, but live it out. Help us, Lord, to understand your word that you give to us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know by now that I grew up in Arizona. I was in the desert for the first 18 or so years of my life, and um, I drove on a ton of dirt roads. Dirt roads um, are not the romantic things that you may see in the movies, um, but most likely you're driving on what's the equivalent of a washboard, and your jaw is just chattering the whole time as you're going along. But you have to be careful when you're on the dirt road not to veer to the right or to the left, particularly where I grew up. Because the ground around you is one of two things. Either incredibly soft, so that if you drive into it, your car is now stuck, or it's a ditch. We normally drove on roads that were accompanied by two ditches, one on each side, and invariably somebody would try and move and miss a jackrabbit, or they'd get tired of the washboard in the middle and try and just get to the very edge, and they'd slip off into the ditch, and then you had to go with the tow truck and pull them back out again, and yes, there were thousands of dollars of damage done to the front of your car. My wife would know nothing about that. Neither would I. We'll have to tell you those stories another time of having to get rescued out of ditches. Um, thing also about the desert is tow trucks are hard to come by, and so often you're just there with some friends trying to push the car back out of the ditch. That's always fun. Um, and this has created for me a bit of a way of thinking. There is a ditch on one side and a ditch on the other, and you need to make sure you remain in the middle. 
My whole life has really been one of being careful not to fall into one ditch or another. And what we see in this text today are two ditches that we need to be aware of. One is the ditch that Ephesus found herself in. The other, the ditch that Pergamum found herself in. And this middle church that we're looking at, this is designed as a sandwich model, really. It's called a chiasm, if you really want to know. The one in the middle is the church that we are supposed to want to be like. But we are most often ditch one or ditch two. The way that these letters are designed, you have group of three, group of three, and a letter to the church of Thyatira, which we're going to look at by itself next week. Pastor Ken will be here with you next week, and then Pastor Jay Lee will be here with you in two weeks, not to talk about Revelation, but to preach on the Reformation, because it will be Reformation weekend. And uh, so you're going to be hearing about Thyatira by itself next week from Pastor Ken. But this week, we look at this first set of three churches with two ditches, and they're actually mirror images of one another. So let's go ahead and look at this first church, the church of Ephesus. Ephesus is here. I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting. Patmos is this little island down here. And if you go directly into Asia Minor, Ephesus is one of the first churches you'd run into. And the letters are actually in a circular order. Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and then back to Ephesus. It makes a nice little circle there. And every time we go to a new church, I'll make sure to throw that map up there so you know where we're at in the order. So the letters are laid out in geographical order. But each one of these little cities has its own set of challenges. This is what we found as we've launched these mission churches. New Paltz has one set of challenges, Port Jervis another, and Beacon yet another, which is why what works in one location may not work in another. There's different things going on in each place. Well, the same was true in the first century. What was going on in Ephesus wasn't necessarily what was going on in Smyrna. So let's look at the letter to the church in Ephesus, this first one closest to Patmos, and see what John has to say. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's remember the imagery here is one of sovereignty. Christ is among the church. He is with the church. He oversees all of human history, but he does so from the vantage point of his church. He is with us and he is for us. And he holds seven stars in his hand. Those are the seven angels of the churches. It's important that we recognize that these angels stand in for the spiritual realm. The church of Jesus Christ finds her roots in the spiritual world, not the physical world. And so while we are with one another in the physical world and in physical places and doing physical things... We are a spiritual people as well, and we operate in the spiritual realm. This is why when we talk about spiritual warfare, we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So there are, there are spiritual roots to the church, and yet very real physical things going on in the church as well. By addressing these letters to the angels of these churches... Jesus is emphasizing that we ought not prioritize the physical over the spiritual or the spiritual over the physical, but that they go together. Write to the angel about physical things. They go together. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Let's look at these first, this, this verse 2 here. It gives us a window into what Ephesus prioritizes. They care deeply about doctrine. They care deeply about truth. 
It matters to them what we believe, why we believe it, and how we live according to those beliefs. We'll see the morality and ethic of Ephesus show up in a little while. They care a lot about doctrine, and they are commended for it. Jesus is not condemning them for caring about these things, but he's extolling them for it, encouraging them to continue on in their care for doctrine. A lot of us grew up in an evangelical church that gave us a little mantra. The mantra went something like this. Doctrine divides, mission unites. And so what we did was we decided that doctrine didn't really matter all that much. We'll just stick to our own version of mere Christianity, not C.S. Lewis's version, our own version, lowest common denominator Christianity, which only needed to agree really on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll just leave all the rest of it to the side. We'll ignore the rest of doctrine, ignore the rest of theology, and just be about mission. And what we have discovered after that experiment is that it doesn't work. Because while we can work together in mission across denominational lines, if we don't have strong theological roots, if we don't root ourselves in something that goes far beyond us, well, then we are like a plant with shallow roots. The sun will hit it and the plant will wither. Trial and tribulation will come, the rains will come, and the winds will come, and we will find ourselves uprooted. Doctrine, theology, the confessions and catechisms, they matter. We root ourselves in something that is far beyond us, in the theological traditions of our spiritual forebearers. This is why we say the catechism together every week. Now, it is true that there are places and times to do this kind of ecumenical work. There are important non-denominational and um, they're, they're parachurch organizations. We support one ourselves. There's one called Young Life that works with youth that I really love and value. And they purposefully don't emphasize doctrinal theological distinctives because they're trying to work together to reach the high school students of their area, in our case, Beacon. And that works really well for a parachurch organization. But that's not the church. The church has a doctrine and has a theology. And so we emphasize these things, we study these things, and we beware false doctrine and false theology that would come in and set us astray. Ephesus took this really seriously. And they're commended for it. The problem is they took it so seriously that they forgot a pretty important part of what it is to be the church. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If you learn this in an older translation, you may have heard, you have forsaken your first love. What is this love? Well, I'll be honest. Most of my life, I thought this was a reference to Christ, that we had abandoned Christ. Perhaps but I think there's something more specific being looked at. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, verses 12 to 14, you hear a prophecy about what this end times life will be like, this end times life that we're all living in today, that we've been living in since the resurrection, and that will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. So he's describing what it looks like toward the end of this present age. This is Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Right? So there's love. There's losing your first love, right? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's the promise that we're going to hear repeated throughout these letters. Well, what's the evidence of love? 
We have to know what love looks like if we know what it looks like for love to grow cold. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Love is evidenced, according to Jesus in this passage, that has love growing cold, but has promise for those who conquer. The same thing we're seeing in these letters to the churches in Revelation. Love looks like the evangelistic task of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to all of the nations. So we can infer that no longer having your first love, or the way it's described here, abandoning the love you had at first is not necessarily an abandoning of Christ. It's an abandoning of the evangelistic task. It is a love for doctrine and a love for holiness that is absent a zeal for the gospel and a love for the lost. The love of Christ is demonstrated in this context through evangelism. As I said in the lead up to our Great Commission video today, we are refocusing our reason for being. We're using new language, mission church. It's to emphasize why we exist. We exist for the work of the Great Commission. We exist for the work of evangelism. Our purpose is worship, but our commission is to share the gospel wide that more and more people would worship. Now, this is not a church growth strategy because the goal is not to have more and more people worshiping here at Goodwill. If that happens, praise God, but that's not the goal. The goal is to see more and more people enter into the kingdom and become worshipers. And so here's the thing. If people come to Christ and then worship at the church down the street, praise God. Because this isn't about our brand. And this isn't about our numbers. This is about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But we know that love has grown cold in our hearts that we have forsaken our first love when we no longer feel a zeal to share the gospel. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? Do you remember the joy of that? And how you just wanted everybody to know what you had discovered? It is the condition of the Christian that that love begins to wane. And so we lean on the Lord and ask, would you continue to burn in us a flame for the gospel, a desperation for the lost? And so when we talk about metrics of success here at Goodwill Church Beacon, there's a handful of metrics that we look at. What does it mean to succeed? Well, at the top of that list is the evangelistic task. Are we sharing the gospel in Beacon? Are we sharing the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers? Are we sharing the gospel in schools and in nursing homes? Are we sharing the gospel? If we're not, we must ask the question, should we remain here? Because this is why we exist, to do evangelism. The reason we need to ask the question if we should still be here, if we're not willing to do evangelism, comes from this very text. There's a warning in here. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The reason we have to ask the question, should we be here if we're not doing evangelism, is because Christ warns us that if you don't do the works that you loved at first, the sharing of the gospel, he'll remove the lampstand. He'll remove it. And these warnings are designed not to terrify us or to threaten us, but to lead us to repentance. Twice we are told to repent. 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 
And so individually, we can ask about our own zeal, but as a church, we must ask, because this is a letter to a church, do we, Goodwill Church Beacon, have a zeal for evangelism and a desire to see our neighbors come to Christ? When we talk together in fellowship hours and at family dinners, when we get together with one another, having dinner, having lunch, getting coffee, we should ask this question. Does our church... Love evangelism? It's a convicting question for me. Something I've been having to wrestle with myself. Perhaps something we should all wrestle with together. But this is not a church that's abandoned Christ. It's simply a church that is losing its way a little bit. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, it's not all bad, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans. The ancient church fathers don't get a whole lot into it, although there's one named Cyprian, um, or sorry, Clement, who says the Nicolaitans practice sexual immorality as just a part of their freedom in Christ. They believe that because we are followers of Jesus, we can just kind of do whatever we want with our bodies, and they expressed this sexually. It's because of a fable that was told. We don't know if this is historically accurate, but Nicolaus, the guy who kind of became the father of the Nicolaitans, and it's argued that the Nicolaitans misunderstood Nicolaus, And made up this story to support it. Somebody came up to Nicholas and they were jealous because his wife was so beautiful. And Nicholas's response was, well, then you can have her too. And this whole cult of the Nicolaitans developed. That's what we believe it is. That's the most we get from the ancient church. And so what we see in Ephesus is a zeal for purity as well as a zeal for doctrine. Both of those things are good. The ditch they run into, though, is a lack of evangelistic zeal. Let's look at the other ditch. We're going to skip Smyrna for a minute. We'll come back to her. Let's go to Pergamum. So here's Ephesus, Smyrna. That's in the middle of the sandwich, so that's kind of our end point. Let's jump up to Pergamum here. That's the third church we look at today. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This repeated reference to Satan is because of the amount of emperor cults and other cults that exist in this area of Pergamum. In fact, not far from Pergamum, there is a throne to Zeus. So Pergamum is a hotbed for false god worship. That is why Jesus calls Pergamum, the place where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. That's where this church is trying to do its work. And they are zealous for evangelism. Notice this. Antipas was so zealous as a witness for Christ that they actually had him killed. This is not a church like Ephesus that has no evangelistic zeal. They do. And they've lived it out. And they face persecution because of it. Antipas himself being killed. So this is a mirror image of Ephesus. They love the evangelistic work. Unfortunately, they don't have a whole lot of uh, appreciation for doctrine or for holiness. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is referencing a story from the Old Testament. Um, Some of you will know that there's a story with a talking donkey. You know that story, the talking donkey? Anybody remember that one? There is a story of a talking donkey. Promise, it's there. I'm not making it up. That's this story, Balaam and Balak. 
And what happens in this story is Balaam is effectively a prophet for hire. Doesn't really have much of a home. Doesn't really care all that much about the people of Israel or any other country. But if a king needs him to prophesy against somebody for their own benefit, pay me enough money and I'll go do it for you. So they pay him to go curse Israel. And an angel of the Lord stands in front of his donkey and says, you're not going anywhere. The whole point of this was prophecy by hire. It doesn't matter what he believed. What he believed was irrelevant. What mattered was the money. And there is this doctrine that's developing in the church of Pergamum that really begins to be all about leading people astray. Perhaps through finances, but more specifically through these acts taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There they are again. This is why we believe that the teaching of the Nicolaitans and sexual immorality went hand in hand because they did so in Pergamum a place where doctrine and holiness did not matter nearly as much as a zeal to share the gospel. Now, these specific ways of worshiping, eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality, they talk, this is talking about cultic temple worship, where you would worship in the temple of a false god. The only way you ate food that was sacrificed to idols was by going into the temple and feasting there or buying that meat in the market afterwards. We have here, though, in the place where Satan's throne is, in the place where Satan dwells, a strong inference that Christians were being told it doesn't really matter what you do. As long as you're for Jesus and you tell people that they need Jesus, you can go into the temples, you can eat the food sacrificed to idols, you can take part in temple prostitution, and this kind of idolatry, this kind of double-mindedness is repeatedly condemned in the Old Testament as spiritual adultery. The Nicolaitans and those who were here in the church in Pergamum who were not all that worried about doctrine, not all that worried about holiness, had allowed the people to engage in spiritual um, adultery through physical adultery and the eating food sacrificed to idols through idol worship. And so we see they have evangelistic zeal. They're even willing to die if it means they can share the gospel. But they don't care about doctrine and they don't care about holiness. It is what the 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer might call cheap grace. A belief that, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus. He forgives me. He gives me grace. So it doesn't really matter what I do. He'll forgive me, right? This is how we abuse grace. Where we use grace as a license to do whatever we want. And convince ourselves that we're still in good standing with God. Because we're proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming grace. It creates this disconnect between what we speak and how we live. And Jesus had a word for that, hypocrisy. One of the charges against the church of Jesus Christ is that we are a bunch of hypocrites. In one sense, of course, they're right. We are preaching a perfect gospel about the perfect Christ, and we are imperfect people. Other times, it's just an unfair accusation. Sometimes Christians play to type. Sometimes we make true the accusation. By preaching one thing and living otherwise. That's what was happening in Pergamum. And here's what Jesus says to them. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll get to the promise in a moment. But notice the warfare message that this, this sword that comes out of Christ's mouth, a double-edged sword, it judges the world 
but it also judges the church. We do not want to sit under the judgment of Christ by being all about what we say and not about what we do. If we are all about the evangelistic task, but we don't care about our doctrine and we don't care about holiness, then this is the church we become. You see, these warnings are guardrails or rumble strips that warn you of the ditch you're about to go into. The first rumble strip says, hey, remember Ephesus? Don't wreck in this ditch. The second rumble strip says, hey, remember Pergamum? Don't wreck in this ditch. Neither of these are acceptable. And there is a warning for each church. I will remove the lampstand or I will war against you with the sword of judgment that comes from my mouth. But it is a warning with a promise. Repent. Why? Because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess your sin and then walk away from that sin. Go in the opposite direction. That's what repentance means. To identify, confess, uh, plead forgiveness, and then turn away. So we turn away from the sin of lethargy when it comes to evangelism. We turn away from the sins of license when it comes to Pergamum. And if we do so, if we repent, there are promises given to us. The first in Ephesus was the promise that we get to eat of the tree of life in the presence of God. This is eternal life stuff. When we repent and we turn, eternal life is what is promised to us. We are given access to the tree of life. In this case, we are given another facet of life. Another picture, another metaphor, another analogy, whatever it is you want to use. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, manna was what rained down from heaven while the people of God were wandering in the wilderness. They had fled from Egypt. They'd gone through the Red Sea. They were free. They were free. They were alive, and they were starving. And they began to grumble and say, man, what? Did he lead us out here into the desert to die? We have no food. And so God gives life in the form of bread or manna from heaven. They were like these wafers. We're not sure what they actually were because none of them lasted. In fact, the only manna that seemed to last for an extended period of time was in the Ark of the Covenant. And if you know where the Ark of the Covenant is, I'd encourage you to call the Smithsonian and make a ton of money. So we don't know what this manna was like, but it was this wafer-like substance that was somewhat sweet to the taste and nutritious enough to keep all of the people alive. It was the Old Testament version of the bread of life. Who is the bread of life for us now, New Testament people? Christ. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. If you overcome, if you turn away from these sins, if you pursue holiness and take hold of your doctrine, and if you are the whole church I'm calling you to be, you're partaking in me, the bread of life. I sustain you. I bring you into glory where you taste of the fruit of the tree of life. And I also give you a stone a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's one of the church fathers, Primacius. He says this, and I will give him a white stone, that is, the adoption of the sons and daughters of God. This stone is a precious gem and may be understood as similar to that pearl which the merchant found and valued as equal to all his possessions which he sold. Another translation renders this as pearl. We receive this stone, the stone of adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High. 
a stone with a new name written on it that only we will know. Consider this love. Consider the beauty of this gift, a white stone that that resembles righteousness and holiness. We still give stones to one another, don't we? Uh, Maybe we don't walk up and give somebody a rock, although I have received a handful of rocks from my kids growing up. Oh, look at this rock, and they give it to me, and now I need to keep it Uh, because they look for it sometimes. Where's that stone I gave you? I don't know. Which one? There were 1,400 in the last year. But the way we give stones that are most um, like picture-worthy is the stone on an engagement ring. We still do this. Someone we love and we want to spend the rest of our lives with, what do we do? We give them a stone. You are mine. I love you. I will be with you. Did you ever wonder where this idea came from, where we're going to just give somebody a rock, and that meant we're going to live the rest of our lives with each other? Like It seems kind of absurd until you know that for the longest time, the giving of a stone, a white stone, was a declaration of love. We've turned it into romantic love, but there were different kinds of love throughout the histories where the giving of a stone would signify this. It's like a pearl of great price that you'll sell everything for to claim. It is a declaration of Christ's love for you. If you overcome, I give you this declaration of my love. I give you life from my very self, for I am the bread of life, and I give you access to the tree of life that you may live forever in my kingdom. If only you would repent. That leaves us with Smyrna. So here was Ephesus. Here was Pergamum, this third one here, right in the middle. That's Smyrna. Smyrna is dealing with something that Ephesus and Pergamum may have experienced in some way, but in a much more intense way. See, persecution in the first century was not ordinarily empire-wide. There were these pop-ups regionally, locally. Smyrna was dealing with just one of those situations. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, this is the second church, the meat to our sandwich, right? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Here... Jesus does not point towards his sovereignty over the churches. He does not point to his role as judge over the churches. He points to his suffering and overcoming of that suffering. He died and he rose again. He is the first and the last. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There were reports in church history, and it seems to be verified by this text here, that as the church and their Jewish cousins grew more and more distant, particularly after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The church began getting themselves in trouble with Roman authorities. Nero's persecution after the burning of Rome had focused specifically on Christians. And this had begun to cleave the relationship between Jew and Christian. For the longest time, Christians even worshipped in synagogues. But by the time you get towards the end of the first century, that's not happening anymore. The relationship, the collegiality that was there is disappearing. And Christians are facing persecution at times because Jewish neighbors were turning them into Roman authorities. They were being thrown into prison and they were being killed. I tell this story as a historic truth not as a moral truth. Passages like this were used by the early church and throughout church history to support anti-Semitism. Look what they did to us. 
To be anti-Semitic is to hate Christ, for Jesus was a Jew. And so anti-Semitism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. But what was happening here in the first century was that there were some Jewish people who were turning Christians in, and Christians were suffering because of it. But they were being turned in to the devil, which stands in for Rome. Now, of course, behind every evil authority is the devil himself. I'm not saying the devil doesn't exist, but the devil uses means, and he often uses corrupt governments to bring about his his desires. This was one such account. The people in Smyrna were suffering greatly, and the suffering was about to get worse. Notice, Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about this church, does he? Nothing bad. And because of what happens before in Ephesus and what happens after in Pergamum, we can understand some of the character of this church. They have a zeal to share the gospel. Otherwise, they'd be hiding and surviving. But no, they must share. But they're also not going to just go along to get along. They care about holiness and doctrine. Smyrna is what Jesus wants Ephesus and Pergamum to be. And the result of them being that is suffering and persecution. You know, we, we think if, if we just do whatever the Lord wants us to do, then life's going to be easy. But in a sin-soaked world like this, when we do what Christ wants us to do, it often means resistance, tribulation, persecution. This is the suffering church in Smyrna. And that's why he promises, I'm with you. The one who suffered and died, do not be afraid to suffer and die as well. Be faithful even unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be killed at the hands of the Romans. But when death tries to take you, I will rescue you and bring you into eternal life. You will receive me, the bread of life. I am with you. I will give you this stone. You will have access to the tree of life. You will not taste the second death. For you faithfully followed me even to the point of death. This is the comfort of Christ as we suffer. He's with us. He's with us in our suffering. When we are bold about the gospel, we're willing to share, and we've received blowback and persecution for doing so, he is with us. When we say, no, we are going to be a holy people who cares about what we believe, and we get pushback and blowback from the world and even sometimes from other Christians, Christ is with us. And the promise is that when we overcome, when we conquer, when we go through death having been faithful to Christ, we receive life. The power that undergirds all of this is the flame on the lampstand. Remember, each of these churches is represented by a lampstand, but not the lamp. What is the lamp? What are the fire that the lampstands hold? If you go back To chapter 1, you find this. Sorry, not back, forward. If you go forward to chapter 4, we're going to see this in a few weeks. We get a picture of the throne. You saw all these glorious things in front of the throne. And then you get this. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven, we know from chapter 1, is the number of completion. The complete spirit of God. Who is the complete spirit of God? This is the Holy Spirit. This is an apocalyptic way of describing the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the torches. They are the flames which sit in the lampstand. 
The ability to endure, the ability to conquer is given to us by the Holy Spirit for he is the fire, not us. We simply hold it. And we proclaim the gospel faithfully. And we pursue holiness. And we understand the truth of Scripture. We take these things seriously, and in doing so, we will be met by suffering, we'll be met by persecution, but we are able to overcome because the Spirit causes us to overcome. And when we do, we are given life, eternal life, because we have access to the bread of life, the tree of life, and the stone of adoption. It says, you are my daughter, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. Welcome home good news. Let's pray. Father, we don't long for persecution or suffering. We don't search for it, but we know that for those of us who follow after Jesus Christ, suffering and persecution may come. We know that in this world, the pursuit of holiness might be the thing that, re- that is responded to by persecution. As Paul told Timothy, it is our conduct of life that is hated. Would we pursue holiness anyway? Would we embrace the truth of the scriptures the way the Ephesian church did, the way the Smyrna church did? But also, Lord, would we have a zeal for evangelism? As the church in Pergamum did, as the Smyrna church did, would we long to share the gospel? Would we be faithful witnesses knowing that as we share the gospel, there will be response, there will even be recompense, there could even be death like there was for Antipas, and yet you call him faithful. Would we be faithful? Holy Spirit, you have saved us in Christ. We have put our faith in you. Would you now make us a faithful people? who are about the evangelistic task, who pursue holiness, who stand on truth. As a church here in Beacon, would we be known for these things? Convict our hearts. Convict us if we refuse to do the evangelistic work. Convict us if we don't pursue holiness. Convict us if we don't care about truth. Holy Spirit, form us into the image of Christ, would we be like this Smyrna church? Told I am with you, for I have also suffered and I have overcome death. When you conquer, you will not taste the second death. Would that be true of our church? Help us to conquer. We need your strength. We need your spirit. And Lord, we need the foundation of the gospel. Help us to be a faithful church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.